Welcome to Pop Culture Rx, part of Hackensack Meridian Health's award-winning podcast. Pop Culture Rx is where we sit down with a medical expert and talk through various health-related topics circulating in today's media. In our discussions, you'll hear from a variety of professionals sharing insight and advice on these newsworthy conditions. This is Pop Culture Rx. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Pop Culture Rx. I'm your host, Kylie, and this is another special edition of the podcast. Back in August, Today Weatherman Al Roker announced that he was to undergo a total shoulder replacement. He continued to mention on how his pain was due to arthritis and that several members of his family suffered from really intense pain as well. This wasn't the first time Al had gone under the knife. He actually had his hip replaced in 2019, surgery on his right knee in 2016, rotator cuff surgery in 2014, and a left knee surgery years prior to that. And he joked on the Today Show that he was probably going to have everything replaced by 2027. Today I'm here with Dr. Frank Alberta, a board-certified orthopedic surgeon who specializes in shoulder and elbow surgery. So before we dive into Al's story, I wanted to ask, what made you choose shoulders and elbows? Well, thanks for having me, first of all, Kylie. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to help out. Um, I started as an athlete growing up, uh, especially focused on baseball, and I had my first elbow surgery when I was 14. And the orthopedist that treated me made a really big impression on me uh, for the way he helped me, the way he handled the problems, um, the way he dealt with you know, the family and everything else. And, and it was such a huge part of my life at the time. Um, I realized that I probably wasn't going to be a professional baseball player. And uh, so I thought eh, maybe it'd be cool to, to help out other baseball players. So that's how I first got interested and decided I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. It's a kind of a similar sappy story that a lot of orthopedists have. We're all former jocks, or a lot of us are anyway. Uh, <laughs> they get hurt, and then you end up uh, needing something done. And then it just it, it seemed really, you know, a great way to kind of do what I like doing at the same time, using my, my brain, my hands, and, and really helping people. Yeah. What did you do to your elbow? Can I ask that? Sure. Yeah. I had a, a pretty typical throwing elbow problem and had a, uh, a problem with the cartilage on one side of my elbow. And then later on found out that I needed a Tommy John surgery. Which and, is? Uh, which is a, a ligament reconstruction that pitchers tend to get. Um, you know, if you follow baseball, you'll see every year there's uh, more and more uh, pitchers uh, having this kind of problem. And so uh, once once I realized that that was sort of what I needed to kind of progress, I decided that's not for me and um, and kind of moved on and moved on into uh, taking care of the baseball players instead of being one. Cool. Very cool. So let's dive into Al's story and talk about arthritis for a minute. So what exactly is arthritis? It's kind of a, a common discussion I have with patients because it's, it's a very common problem. And the, very, the, the simplest way to think of arthritis is if you break down the word and understand the meaning of the word. So anything where you see an itis at the end, the I-T-I-S, what we see in tendonitis, bursitis, itis means inflammation. It's that simple. And then the arth part at the beginning of it, the A-R-T-H-R, means joint. So uh, the, the, the literal translation of the word means inflammation in a joint. There are different kinds of arthritis. And so in general, arthritis means inflammation within a joint that 
the way patients usually express it or the way we talk about it with patients means that the joint is breaking down in some way, shape, or form. And the easiest way to sort of describe that or talk about it is that patients start to lose the cartilage that lines the joint. Okay. And as that breaks down, the joint then breaks down and the body tries to respond and replace that cartilage, but it can't. So we don't, we always say you get one cartilage surface in your joints per lifetime. And once that joint surface is gone, then you're really kind of limited in terms of how you can recover. And so the body will do what it can and usually it, it will make more kind of scar tissue, it makes more bone, you get bone spurs, and eventually the joint itself is destroyed. And that's when we, you know, start, that's when we start getting involved and start seeing patients. So that's the simplest way to think of arthritis. It's inflammation in the joint that leads to destruction over time. And again, there's, there's a couple different kinds. And a lot of people yeah. will say that they have, you know, arthritis all over their body. <laughs> That's rare and, and or rarer, I should say. And those are those inflammatory arthritis, things like rheumatoid arthritis, which, again, is not a, the most common thing we see. So arthritis is a very specific problem, especially osteoarthritis, which is the, the most common one we treat, that tends to affect each joint individually. And there's a couple different reasons you'd get osteoarthritis. One is, you know, you can be predisposed to it. So like in Al's story, he said m multiple members of his family have had shoulder arthritis. Yeah. That's probably a genetic sort of anatomical disposition or predisposition. So the way he's built. So Al can probably blame his mom and dad for his shoulder arthritis in that his shoulders were shaped in such a way that they were sort of prone to breaking down. The other way we see osteoarthritis, whether it's shoulder, knee, hip, whatever, um, is from an injury. So you have something happen to the joint the joint gets damaged, and then that progresses over time. So those are the two most common ways that we see it. I was actually going to ask about the genetics of it because it's weird that, to me, to read, you know, his family members have it, he has it, it has to, you know, connect there. And, you know, it makes me almost worried because I'm like, okay, what does my mom feel? What does my dad feel? Okay, what do I have to look out for? Can I take, you know, vitamins to help this in the meantime? The major, you know, categories of arthritis, as I mentioned, one is sort of the osteoarthritis, which tends to be, you know, usually a, a breakdown in a joint. And we see that in the weight-bearing joints more, right? Mm -hmm. You see hip and knee arthritis is the most common way. And that's not necessarily a genetic predisposition, but sometimes it is, again, based on your anatomy. You know, people who are born more bow-legged have a tendency to develop arthritis faster, or uh, certain shapes in your hip joints are more likely to develop arthritis. But in general, those are weight-bearing joints that over time sort of get beat up and then they start to wear out. The other way is these, these other types of sort of global arthritis that involves the whole body or multiple joints like rheumatoid. And they fall into a category of inflammatory arthritis. That is, your joints themselves are just predisposed and there are different things that your body does to kind of unfortunately hasten that. So like rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune problem where yes. your, your body sort of turns on itself and breaks down the cartilage through this reaction in the synovium, which is the lining of the joint. So that's one where people say, I have I'm loaded with arthritis. That's not really the way it works, unless you have one of those inflammatory arthritis. And it's not really the way it works that if your mom and dad had it, you're definitely going to have it. But, um, but there are some reasons why you would. And, and those are the kind of things that we have to figure out because it helps us sort of determine the best way to treat you, whether it's you know, before you develop a problem or after you have in one joint, then we can figure out what to do in those others. Is there anything we can do, you know, proactively to not 
get arthritis in the future? There is a, a, a ton of research that has been going on for years and years and years about arthritis and arthritis prevention. And again, it really depends on what the cause of the arthritis is on how you, you know, best sort of keep it at bay. Yeah. And, you know, certainly if you've had some damage to the joint, then you want to avoid further damage to the joint. And the way you do that is with you know, avoiding those impact type things. So if you have an injury to your knee that's resulted in some damage to your knee, you don't want to then run marathons every week. Um, maybe you have to change and do something a little less impactful, whether mm -hmm. it's riding a bike or something like that. From a medical standpoint and preventative treatment options, there are, there are limited sort of success with different things that are out there. And we see things like Glucosamine and chondroitin sulfate has been around for a long time, and it's used extensively in the veterinary population, in, in, in fact. And there has been some pretty good evidence that as a preventative measure or, or kind of slowing down the advancement of arthritis, that it, it's possible that that can help. Is that when they um, inject into your joint or no? No, that, that's so there's different ways. There are different types of injections. And, and unfortunately, you know, usually when we're injecting things, it's already You've already developed already the arthritis, right? Yeah. And so we, we can we can we can help um, with the with the current situation and maybe slowing down the progression. And one of the most common things that's injected is, uh, you know, right now it's approved in the knees only, but it's called visco supplementation. And the major component of, of those injections is something called hyaluronic acid. And and if you follow plastic surgery or interdermatology, <laughs> those are the things that are it's, it helps with the collagen health. And so hyaluronic acid is a normal component in the uh, what's called the synovial fluid so if you think of each joint um as a let's say a cylinder in an engine right um there's normally oil in your car's engine that is when it's clean and healthy that engine oil keeps everything running smooth um the hyaluronic acid and the fluid in your joints does the same thing and over time as that joint breaks down just like as that part of your engine breaks down you'll get the, the, the oil gets thinner and you get grit in it and it starts to get a little bit more kind of, um, you know, uh, crunchy when you move or, or when that, that engine works and it's not as efficient. The exact same thing happens in your joints. So these injections are a way to kind of put back that um, lubricating fluid and back to kind of its normal state. And again, they also have variable you know, variable results, I should yeah. say. So, you, you know, in the knee, it's it's been used extensively and it still is. And, and most patients will get some relief, um, but it doesn't really, you know, it hasn't necessarily been approved for use in all the other joints. And it's, you know, marginally helpful in those other areas. Let's jump back into Al. So he has had surgery on his rotator cuff and now he's having a, or now he had a full on shoulder replacement. So, should he have had maybe a shoulder replacement to begin with, or is that two very different surgeries? So they are two very different surgeries, depending on the type of arthritis Al had. So rotator cuff, you know, I like to say that the rotator cuff is kind of the engine of the shoulder. It, it's different. Um, you know, it's the most common way that the shoulder breaks down. So over time, and you know, most of the problems that we see in the shoulder world are rotator cuff related. And the rotator cuff is the engine of the shoulder. It positions your arm in space so that you can do all the things you do with your hand. And over time that breaks down. So arthritis in the shoulder is less common than rotator cuff disease. Whereas in the hip and knee, you have more, you're more likely to have arthritis because of the impact of walking yeah. or being on your feet. And since we don't walk on our hands, you're less likely to get, <laughs> you're less likely to have arthritis. But the rotator cuff does break down more commonly. 
The rotator cuff is a series of tendons in your shoulder, and that's much different than the joint breaking down. So the most common problem we see in the rotator cuff are tendonitis and then tears of the rotator cuff. And those tears are generally treating, treated with repair. It's not a replacement necessary. If you leave a rotator cuff torn for long enough, and it's torn badly enough that it can't be reconstructed, eventually the joint will wear out because it doesn't move right anymore. Like I said, the shoulder is positioned by the rotator cuff. So if you leave it long enough, the shoulder joint will wear out because the rotator cuff doesn't work. Then you need to replace the shoulder, but you don't have a functioning rotator cuff. So even so though you're- you replace everything. Right, so instead of, you know, like I always say, when you have a shoulder replacement, it's like putting new tires on your car, right? Mm -hmm. The engine works perfectly as long as your rotator cuff is intact. You just need new tires, and then the car runs smoothly again. If your engine doesn't work and you put new tires on it, it's not going to help. <laughs> so we have a new procedure, relatively new, that's called reverse total shoulder arthroplasty that we use when you don't have a functioning rotator cuff. So without knowing the specifics of Al's case, I don't know if his rotator cuff tear was maybe it was on the other side even, I don't know. I mean, it, 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 you yeah, know, know. But, um, but if it was the same side and he had rotator cuff disease, then the type of replacement he might've had would be a reverse total shoulder. And a lot of patients will come in and ask us like, what's this reverse shoulder we hear about? So that's what it has to do with the rotator cuff more. So we know rotator cuff surgery, full on replacement. Are there any other shoulder surgeries that we could have? Oh, sure, there's a lot. You know, the younger, you know, the, in the younger population, the more, um, athletic population, you know, usually they have traumatic type injuries where you'll tear something and whether it's a labrum or you mm -hmm. dislocate your shoulder and then tear the labrum or there's fractures, obviously, that we fix in the shoulder. So, uh, you know, in patients who don't have sort of degenerative issues, whether it be as the rotator cuff wears out or if you have arthritis like we spoke, spoke about, the more common things we treat are, or more common surgeries we do are, are instability related. So a shoulder that's dislocating a labrum tear, uh, clavicle fractures are very common and those kind of things. So I know surgeries now, like rotator cuff, are outpatient surgeries, right? Meaning that you can go home that afternoon. Is the replacement surgery the same thing or do you have to plan to kind of stay in the hospital for a little while? In shoulder replacement surgery, a relatively new concept is same day um, or, or outpatient total shoulder replacement, which means that you have the surgery done in the morning, you hang around and maybe get another dose of antibiotics, um, and then you can go home the same day. And a lot of that um, has been pioneered or based off of what has happened in from our brothers in the hip and knee replacement world. And so, you know, we've, we've followed a lot of the protocols that they've uh, developed and found that it's very, very safe and also very, very preferential to the patients to be home, right? They, they do better when they're home. And a lot of that has to do with the way we've been able to manage pain after surgery. A lot, a, a, you know, a very common thing I hear in my office over and over is that I've heard that shoulder surgery is terribly painful and that it's awful recovery, et cetera, et cetera. And unfortunately, that was true uh, for a long time. And through, you know, us actually paying a lot of attention to it and trying to figure out what's best for the patients, Again, different anesthetic techniques and different pain management techniques and also different surgical techniques that have helped minimize the amount of trauma and therefore pain that we create by doing the surgery. It's become very, very common and also very, very desirable for the patients and that they can go home safely on the same day of surgery. The majority of shoulder replacements, we will get the patients home the same day. And um, 
uh, you know, obviously there's a number of criteria you have to meet from a medical standpoint. Yes, there's also course. criteria in terms of you have to have help at home, you know, so because you're going to be in a sling and you'll be in some discomfort and you won't be able to necessarily take care of yourself. But but um, we've we moved a lot of uh, shoulder replacement surgery to the outpatient space, which has been a really, really um, beneficial, you know, uh, advancement. Yeah, and you brought up pain, which is actually, you know, something I wanted to talk about. So I must confess, I have had surgery in the past, which I mentioned earlier before we turned on our mics. Um, I, I tore my labrum and subluxated my shoulder in high school. And the one thing I just vividly remember is I got a nerve block. So basically, like, cut off all feeling to my arm for, like, three days. And I got to carry around, like, a a a ball of medicine is like the best way to describe it. Um, is that something you all still do or recommend or is it kind of different for each surgery? It is, it's different for each surgeon, I would say, and also for the way that it's managed at the the hospital and with the anesthesiologist, because it's a team effort, as you know. Um, but what has been universally accepted as, as the sort of uh, standard of care is a, a preoperative nerve block for almost every shoulder surgery because of the benefits that it provides. So, yeah. so the, you know, sometimes it's a little weird. The patients get a little nervous sometimes. So they wake up and they don't, they don't have any pain, which is wonderful, but you can't feel your hand or you can't move your oh, arm. Yeah, you, and, like, yeah. can't feel nothing. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's, it's about education, right? So we have to explain that to patients, but, um, you know, a lot of times when patients are nervous about that and then you tell them the alternative is being a lot of pain. Um, I think we, you know, can convince them that it's in their best interest to do the nerve block there. Are, you know, what you described is what we call a, uh, an indwelling catheter or uh, a pain pump, so to speak, that's, yes. that's left in place at the time of surgery so that uh, it gives you continuous medicine. And that's a great, you know, great way to deal with it because the majority of pain, if you didn't have a nerve block or if you had a nerve block that didn't work, what you would see is that the majority of the pain happens about 24 to 48 hours mm -hmm. after the surgery. So if we can get the patients through that initial sort of two days, then they do really, really well. The pain levels go down so much after that first two days after surgery that if, if we can kind of, again, reduce the pain enough then, then, then maybe all you need is some Tylenol and some ice, and, and that's what we've seen. Yeah. So now, just recently, over the last five years, there's a new type of nerve block where the nerve block itself can last up to three days. And so you don't need to have the uh, catheter in and the ball that you're walking around with the medicine because a lot of times that causes some issues, right? Sometimes the catheters can come out, they can get loose, they can leak. And so if, if you're not, you know, managing that, it, it, it used to generate a lot of stress for the patients and the doctor because we get calls all the time about these, these things coming out or that they're leaking yeah. or whatever. So, and, and this is a relatively new development, but we have nerve blocks alone, one shot that goes in at the time of surgery that can last up to three days. Oh, wow. And so... So uh, no wires hanging down from you, getting caught on everything. Exactly. And so that's been a real game changer in my practice uh, specifically and in the practice and in, you know, the, the, you know, the, the world of shoulder surgery in general, um, where we really, really have been able to reduce, you know, the amount of pain medicine that patients need. And, you know, I, I don't have to, you know, reiterate a whole lot about the, the problems with the opioids. These kind of things have really, really changed the way we can treat people and really sort of advance the field forward. Um, 
and made a huge difference in, in how well patients tolerate the surgery without needing a whole lot of pain medicine. Yeah, I really can't remember ever having to take pain medication. I had a giant, after surgery, they put on this Iceman pack that was like basically a special ice pack for your arm. Um, I, it, was, it basically had like an octopus arm that hooked up into a, um, a cooler. So it constantly kept me cool. So between that and the nerve block, I, I was feeling good. I really hadn't, I did not have a bad experience at all. And obviously now I'm moving my arm around and it's fine. Um, but yeah, no, I, I never really had to take any pain medication that I could remember. Yeah, and, that's the goal. You know, it was a really good experience. I like, I highly recommend it to anyone who says, or who ends up having like that weird sling with the pillow underneath. I'm like, ooh, did you have, did you tear your labrum? <laughs> I feel like I'm like an expert there. But yeah, no, it was definitely a good experience. And I can't say that everyone has had a great experience. I mean, Al Roker even mentioned that pain from his shoulder surgery was definitely a little more edgy than his other types of surgery, which as you said, you know, shoulder surgery is a rough one, but having the nerve block was real a game changer. So what does the rest of recovery look like? So. You know, from my, my experience, you know, I was held up in a sling for, you know, six-ish weeks, as I could remember. But for total shoulder replacement, are you in a sling for longer, shorter, or does it kind of look the same? It's, uh, you know, roughly the same. I think it varies by physician, quite honestly. But labrum surgery mm -hmm. tends to be really well tolerated, meaning it, it's, it's not terribly painful. And a lot of that has to do with... Um, you know, the sort of demographic or the age group that has it, where um, usually it's high school and college age athletes that, you know, tear their labrum or, or have a dislocation, and those patients tend to tolerate the surgery really, really well. Rotator cuff surgery is a different animal. Rotator cuff surgery, you know, described by most patients who haven't had one of these long-acting nerve blocks or, or a pain pump, is relatively miserable. And <laughs> they really, really don't have a good time uh, after surgery. And you think about it, rotator cuff surgery is now for almost all patients, and I won't say all, but almost all, is an arthroscopic procedure similar to the labrum surgery you had, um, done with a couple little holes in a camera and maybe one stitch in each hole, and you go home the same day and you think, oh my gosh, it's a simple surgery. But it really, really hurts. And that surgery, because we're trying to get these tendons to heal back to bone, um, you know, we really have to protect those repairs. So those patients are locked up for a while in a sling, like six weeks or so. They're not doing a whole lot from a therapy standpoint. And they tend to hurt a lot. They tend to be relatively miserable. The interesting thing is total shoulder surgery hurts much less than rotator cuff surgery, even though it's a big open surgery with an incision, et cetera, et cetera. So for the, you know, and if you look at the averages, so to speak, I mean, everybody is different, but yeah. total shoulder surgery is much better tolerated than rotator cuff surgery. And there's a lot of theories on why that might be because of the way you do the surgery and what you have to do and what parts of the shoulder you operate on. But in general, it's tolerated really well. And um, there's less pain, the pain goes away much quicker. And we let you do more with the shoulder a little bit faster than you do from a rotator cuff. So you do tend to, to take longer to recover. So in a in a total shoulder replacement, you know, once the sort of the skin heals, and there's and there's one tendon that we have to sort of open or take off to get into the shoulder. And then we have to repair that on the way out of the shoulder. Once that's healed, you could pretty much go back to normal, you know, start using the yeah. arm because we're not waiting for anything else to heal. 
And that's the difference. So people do tend to bounce back a little bit quicker even than say a rotator cuff repair. And I feel like that's pretty common for a lot of replacement surgeries. Like for hip replacement surgery, my aunt was walking out the door that that day. You know, she just had surgery on her hip and then was walking out the door. So it's, I feel like, is that common for replacement surgeries? It uh, It is, it's funny, you know, there, a lot of patients will have had multiple joints replaced by the time they get to me or they get to one of my partners that does hip and knee replacement, they've seen me or vice versa. And what we, what you sort of see universally across the board is that the easiest replacement is a hip replacement or in terms of how well the patients tolerate it and do after surgery because there's not a whole lot of muscle, you know, that has to be cut or moved or to get in and out of the hip. The patients can walk immediately. They have very little pain associated with it and they bounce back very, very quickly. Knees tend to be the worst in terms of, you know, how much... Um, pain there is afterwards and how hard it is to recover because of the way, again, there's no easy way to get in and out of the knee. And you have to kind of move things out of the way and hold them out of the way and turn them inside out. And they tend to hurt and and they take a long time. Shoulders are in the middle. But generally speaking, you know, you're not really waiting for anything to heal. So it's really once the skin is healed and you get over the, the trauma of the surgery itself, you can bounce back pretty quickly. So I think that that's a pretty good assessment that the replacements do they do bounce back faster than some of the other repair or reconstruction surgeries because you're you have to kind of let everything heal in those patients and you're really locking those patients up to let them heal and it it takes a long longer time so i wanted to know tips and tricks for those thinking about shoulder surgery so for me i know the weirdest tip or trick that I could give for when I had shoulder surgery is not realizing how much you use both your arms for. So from washing your hair to even like going to the bathroom and ripping off toilet paper, you don't even realize that you use both your hands for those things. Mm -hmm. So what are some tips and tricks that you can give to people thinking about shoulder replacement surgery or maybe in the midst of it right now? Yeah, we always tell folks to like, you know, do some dry runs before surgery. And, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, pretend like your arm is in a sling or, or maybe even put it in a sling and see what you're going to need help with. Because even simple stuff like you just mentioned, like what, what side is the toilet paper on in the, in the yeah. bathroom or, or where's your nightstand? You know, which side of the bed are you on? You know, can you reach the light or, or the alarm clock or whatever it is? Um, you know, we, we often tell people to kind of try to go through how to get dressed. And, and again, it really it also depends on how much help you have and, and those kind of things at home. But most people don't want to be too reliant on somebody else to get dressed and wash themselves and bathe themselves and that sort of thing. But w- without question, you will need some help. But I think it's really helpful to to go through a dry run beforehand and, and make sure that, you know, you can or you know how to do those things before you are in a situation where you want to you know, you don't want to put the surgery or sort of repair at risk, depending on the surgery you have. Mm-hmm. And most of the stuff we do isn't that fragile. But, you know, the other thing that I tell people a lot, and, and this goes in with this, is that when you're in a sling, it's sometimes you don't realize how much you use your arms even just for normal balance and walking. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of folks, especially some of our, you know, older patients, will have a little bit harder time sort of with their balance. And we have people who have have struggled with that after surgery because, again, your arms, the way we swing our arms when we walk, those things, you you lose that ability and you, you have to be very careful. So 
it is, I think, really helpful to kind of dry run it before surgery so you have some idea of what you're up against. I think that's great advice. And anything else you'd like to add? No, I probably talked too much already. No, that's, that's great. I think you talked just enough. But thank you so much for being here with us today. Until next time. If you have a topic you'd like for us to cover, submit your ideas on hmh4u.org backslash podcast. Your suggestion could be included in the You Asked For It special episodes. That's all for today. Until next Wednesday, thanks for listening. The material provided through this Help You podcast is intended to be used as general information only and should not replace the advice of your physician. Always consult your physician for individual care.